Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Who's going back to school this week? Raise your hand if you're going back to school this week or college. Are you going to college this week? Not yet? All right. Next week? Yeah. And uh, some of us in, in, in the congregation work 12 months a, a year at the schools. So we didn't get a break. But um, we will be uh, praying for and celebrating our um, kids who are going back to school, our students who are going back to college on the 27th of August. Uh, we're going to have a uh, time of uh, blessing of the backpacks on, uh, during our service. Uh, so your kids can, uh, if you want to have them bring their backpacks with them, uh, we're going to have a few things, I think, to uh, add to their backpacks. And we're also going to just pray over our students as they uh, probably have already headed back to school. But um, just to pray for them, pray that they will continue to remain strong in Christ, pray that they can find ways to share Christ with people, uh, their, their fellow students, even their teachers. Uh, so we invite you all for that. And then afterwards, of course, we're going to have a little picnic out in the uh, back part of the church. Uh, I think there might be a water slide involved. So, you know, if you want to bring your bathing suits or, or don't, you know, if you like to water slide in your Sunday clothes, it's fine. Um, but just uh, put that on your calendar. We'd like to have uh, a lot of people here just praying over our students on that Sunday morning. Last week, we started looking at the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah and its, its overarching theme um, is, is God's sovereignty and God's mercy. And we see both of those happening here in the book of Jonah. And last week, uh, a couple of you looked a little confused. Maybe you were contemplating the massiveness of God's sovereignty and what that means. Um, but you remember that we said that God's sovereignty is the ability and even the right to exercise power without limitation. And we said that God created everything. And a sovereign's power is beyond the power of any others to interfere in the decisions and the actions of the ruler. We don't have the power to do that. We can't say, God, you, you're not going to do this. That's just not something that's within our human abilities. And when we say that God is sovereign as Christians, what we're saying is that God is the supreme authority of our lives. He has absolute power over us, just as he has absolute power over all things, everything that he created. And what that means is that God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, where he wants, and to whom he wants. And there's not anything that we can do to stop him if he wants to do those things. In Jeremiah 18, God spoke directly to Jeremiah. He said, arise and go down to the potter's house. And, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. Anybody ever seen a potter working at their potter's wheel? It's really messy. Um, but he's there working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. He made some sort of a, a mistake or, or something. You know, even um, I've, I've talked to artists, potters, and even sometimes something as, as strange as 
you know, a bit of wind coming and flicking dust into the clay can kind of warp it a little bit and, and they have to go back and start over. And he reworked it into another vessel. So he stopped making whatever it was that he was making and he reformed it. He said, I'm going to make something else as it seemed good to the potter to do. The potter made that decision. He had the power over the clay to make whatever he wanted. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do this with you? As the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And of course we see God is talking to his people, Israel, here. And what it means is that God can do what he wants with his people, the house of Israel. But really what he's saying, he's talking to his people. And we now, Christians, we who accept Jesus Christ, are his people. We are the new Israel, so to speak. And God is saying the same thing to us. I'm forming you into something. But if I want to form you into something else, I will form you into something else. That is the sovereignty that the potter has over the clay. And God is the potter. And we are the clay. And he is going to turn us into whatever he wants us to be. So, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with clay before. Anybody ever worked with clay? Any artists? Any uh, second grade art class where you just kind of took the clay and, and <laughs> made like little, you know, uh, the only thing I could do is like roll it up and make it into a snake. That was, that was it. That was my extent of working with clay. But do you remember what you had to do in order to work with the clay? You had to keep it wet. Right? Because if it didn't get wet, what would happen? It would dry out. Right? And you could end up, if you set this, this block of clay out and it dried out, it would be kind of hard like a brick. And that's kind of how some of us are. When we remove ourselves from the sovereignty of the potter, and we decide we're going to sit over here by ourselves. Well, we're going to dry out. We're going to become like bricks. Our hearts are going to become hard like stones. And this is what happens sometimes. And the reality is that God can do what he wants. If he wants to pick us up and slam us into the water, turn us back into good clay, he can but he doesn't always do that. And this is the other side of this book of Jonah. God can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants, however he wants. But he chooses in his wisdom and in his grace and in his love to give us free will. To give us the ability to say, I'm going to sit over here and dry out. He gives that to us. 
Because a relationship that does not have love, a relationship that does not allow you to make the choice to love is not a loving relationship. It's something else. Now that's not how God treats all the rest of his creation. And somebody came up to me last week and we were talking about how Jonah was in the, the belly of the whale and the, or the, the fish. And the uh, passage says that God appointed a great fish and to swallow Jonah up. And this person came up to me and he said, you know, the fish didn't have free will. And I said, you're right. The fish didn't have free will. Because the fish didn't have to make the decision, right? Because God created the fish different than he created us. Do you remember in Genesis when he created everything? He spoke it into existence. He said, this is this, and this is this, and this is that, and I'm going to use this for this, and I'm going to use this for that. But when he created man, he used his hands and created us out of the dust of the ground, almost like clay. And he formed us and he breathed into us the breath of life. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, after he has breathed into us the breath of life, after he has placed us in the Garden of Eden and told us, work the Garden of Eden, he says this to the man. He says, you may surely eat... Oh, I didn't put these slides in. You, must, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. How many of you think that sounds like a good choice? You got options. Eat the fruit and die, or don't eat the fruit and live. How, do, how many of you think that sounds like a good choice? God's really being generous there. It sounds kind of weird, right? But we know that God, after we've read the passage, since we've been living for however many tens of thousands of years, we know that God wasn't talking about smiting Adam right there. You eat that fruit, and while that fruit's still in your mouth, I'm going to smite you dead. The fruit will spit out all over the place, and I'm just going to erase you and start over. That's not what God meant. What God meant when he said, you shall surely die, is that your spirit, that thing that connects us to God in a loving relationship, that's going to be cut off from God. You will no longer have that loving relationship with me. You will, in essence, become my enemy what the Bible says. If you eat the fruit. And that's what happened. But again, with the free will, God also shows mercy to us. Because he knows we're stupid. He knows we're going to make mistakes. He knows that we're going to make decisions that are not good for us. Anybody ever make a decision that's not good for you? You can see it right here. <laughs> he knew. 
And the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, he had a plan. He knew what was going to happen. He knew we were going to make dumb mistakes. He knew we were going to sin against him and break off that relationship. And he had a plan to get us back. He had a plan to restore that connection. And that plan was his son, Jesus Christ. But he knew it was, wasn't going to be easy. Because our hearts would become hard like the clay. It would take some incredible work from God to bring us back to him. And this is Jonah. When we look at Jonah, the same things happening in Jonah. He has hardened his heart. His heart was hardened by hatred of the Ninevites. Remember last week we said the Ninevites were incredibly, incredibly horrible to the Israelites. And Jonah had hardened his heart against the, 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 the Ninevites by hatred, and he then hardened his heart against God, who had the audacity to want to show them mercy. Who had the audacity to want to warn them that they would be destroyed unless they repented. And that hardened Jonah's heart against God. It was a dried up brick of clay. And we all know how to make potter's clay soft again. We just add water. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Talk about adding water. And there's a couple of things that are going on here, right here in these couple of verses, that are miraculous. If we know what we're looking for. The Lord appointed the fish to swallow up Jonah. God made sure that the fish was where it needed to be, when it needed to be there. So that when Jonah got thrown over, it was ready to go and swallow him up. That in itself shows of God's control over time, God's control over his creation, his sovereignty over these things. Now just so you guys are aware, we don't know what kind of fish it was. Most of the time, we've been told that it was a whale. And that's probably because the biggest sea creature that we know of today that could swallow a man whole is a sperm whale. That's the biggest creature that has a throat big enough to fit a human whole into it. But... It's possible that it was a creature that we don't know about. It's possible it could have been the Leviathan. Anybody read the book of Job in Job chapter 40? God talks about the Leviathan, and it's this huge sea creature. I've never seen a Leviathan. Nobody has ever taken a picture of one. I've seen some drawings of one. They look pretty hideous. But it could have been 
a Leviathan. It could have been another type of fish that has since gone extinct. Or just one that we haven't discovered yet. And it's really, really kind of interesting because I just read an article yesterday where up in Vancouver, British Columbia, they actually think they've discovered a new species of fish. Now, obviously not as big as a sperm whale, but we're discovering these things all the time. We're finding these things all the time. For us to have the audacity, for us to have the, the, just the pride and the hubris to say we know all things, that's not true. We're discovering things every day. It could be a fish that has disappeared so far under the ocean we can't find it. Could be a whale. It doesn't really matter what it was. In 2016, a Spanish sailor named Luigi Marquez went overboard in a storm off the coast of Spain, and he disappeared. Everybody thought he was dead. He showed up four days later claiming to have been swallowed by a whale and that he survived in the whale's stomach for three days, eating raw fish and smelling what you would smell if you were in the belly of a whale. Now, scientists will tell you that humans can't survive in the belly of a whale. That if you weren't sliced to death by its teeth, or you weren't dissolved by its stomach acid, that you would run out of air, because there's no air in a whale's stomach. Scientists call it impossible. What do we call it when God does the impossible? What do we call it? A miracle. Do we believe that miracles happen? We don't know what Jonah did. We don't know how, we knew how long he was there. He was there for three days. We don't know what he did. We don't know what he thought. We don't know anything about Jonah during those three days and three nights. Kind of like when Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And I bring that up because Jesus brought it up. Jesus, when he was here on earth, confirmed that the story of Jonah was a true story. And he says in Matthew 12, 39, the uh, Pharisees are seeking a sign from him. And he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus looked at the Pharisees, looked at the people that were with him, and said, this happened. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a fable. It is not a morality story. Jonah sat in a fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, you scribes and Pharisees, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Sorry, spoiler alert. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
And if we believe that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, then we have to believe that the story of Jonah is a true story. We have to believe it happened. Regardless of what scientists say, regardless of what our human brains might think, we don't understand everything that God does or how God does it. God could have instantaneously created a fish that was able to swallow Jonah, and then once the fish was done with, God could have said, okay, I'm taking him back out of the ocean. We don't know. We just know that it happened. And the thing we got to remember about Jesus' story is this idea of God's sovereignty. Because whether we realize it or not, when we read this passage in Matthew, what Jesus is saying is that everything that happened in the story of Jonah, from his disobedience to his fleeing to his time in the fish, was a sign of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Almost like it had to happen. That's the sovereignty of God. So I have a question, and, and this is a question I keep mulling over in my head. What did Jonah do? Anybody ever been like away for, th for a couple of days and you don't have internet and you don't have electricity and you're just out in nature and nothing else really to do? Anybody like to do that kind of camping? Our son right now is out in the middle of the woods uh, with very little internet and no electricity. I don't know why. <laughs> but what did Jonah do? I, I mean, I suppose if I was Jonah, I would sit there and contemplate how I became a passenger in a fish. <laughs> I might contemplate what brought me to this lowly state. And I have to guess that that's what Jonah did, because we don't hear anything from Jonah until Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. We think he might have done some thinking, because then, the Lord, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights. And it ended with a prayer. But Jonah didn't pray for rescue. He could have prayed for rescue. He probably wanted to pray for rescue. Jonah didn't even pray for forgiveness. He didn't pray for God to leave him alone and let him die. Take a look. We're going to read Jonah's prayer. Let's see what Jonah actually had to say to God after three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. He called out saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your willows, and all your waves. I think I messed up again. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah's prayer. That's how it starts. God, this is what happened. As if 
God needed Jonah to tell him what had happened. Yes, I know Jonah. I was there. But Jonah gives this recap. Jonah gives this explanation of everything that he went through, all of the thoughts that he had while he was sinking into the ocean. Your waves were billowing around me. I was in distress. When we pray, we're not praying for God's benefit. We don't need to pray to tell God what's going on. God knows what's going on. When we pray, we're acknowledging what has happened. Especially when we pray a prayer of forgiveness, repentance, or something like that. God, I have done these things. We don't have to tell God we've done them. He knows we've done them. But we pray those things not for God's benefit. For ours. We pray those things to acknowledge in our own mind and in our own heart the things that we have done that have been against God. That's why we make those prayers. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Let me read that again. I am driven from your sight. This is where I am now. But I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah's prayer is not a prayer of desperation. It's not a prayer of despair. It's a prayer of hope. Once Jonah's hardened clay heart became soft and he started to understand what was going on, he called out to God and he said, God, I know that you can rescue me. I have hope that I will once again look upon your holy temple. God, I know you can take me out of this fish. I know you can get me out of this water. I know that you can do anything. And that's why I have hope. And he goes on, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land upon whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. You sent the fish. This was you. If you had been swallowed by a fish after being thrown overboard because you knew you had sinned against God and you knew the only way for people to survive was to be thrown overboard and you figured you were going to die, you were going to drown, and then a big fish came and swallowed you, what would you think? Well, what an amazing coincidence that this fish just happened to be here at the correct place in the correct time. No! You brought my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. And then he goes on. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
But those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. God, I know what you did for me. God, I know I'm sitting in this fish because of you. I am alive because of you. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake that hope. They forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you were here last week, you remember us talking about the sailors and how they made a sacrifice and how they made vows. They made a sacrifice to God, thanking Him for saving their lives, and they vowed to be God's people. And this is exactly the same thing that Jonah is saying. He's saying, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. It's like a book-ended story here that starts with him getting thrown into the water and ends with him rededicating his purpose, his will, to the will of God. Now, there are a lot of sermons being preached in a lot of churches these days that focus on this truth about God. God is love, and God's love is steadfast. How many of you believe that God is love and God's love is steadfast? But how many churches are also hearing those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love? God is love. It's true. We read that all throughout Scripture. It's the, it's the theme of Scripture that God is love. And because God is love, we have free will. We've already talked about that. We have free will. We can choose to accept the truth of the gospel and repent. And as John 1.12 says, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let me read that again because I was messing with the slides. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How many of you have heard preachers say, we are all children of God? That is a lie. We are not all children of God unless we have received the right to become children of God by believing in Jesus' name. Until then, the Bible says we are sons of the devil. I'm telling you. People are not hearing the full message of who God is. Because God is love and God wants us to want him freely, to want him willingly. He sent his son Jesus Christ so that we have that option. But we also have the option. We also have the choice to say no. God allows that option because He is sovereign and He is love and He is mercy. 
And that's what Romans 1 talks about. The people who decide not to believe on the name of Jesus. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their hearts became foolish and darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And it goes on a couple of verses later. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And again, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you notice the common thread here? God gave them up. God wanted to save them. God gave them away back to him, but he loved them so much that they had to make the choice for themselves. And they chose the other way. And make no mistake, God wept when he gave them up. This is not what I want for you. But I'm not going to force you. You got to make the decision yourself. That's what God is saying here. He didn't want to give them up. And praise God, he is patient and he is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because otherwise, a lot of us wouldn't be sitting here right now. Myself included. God gave them up, but he never stopped pursuing them. God gave them up, but he never closed off the way back. God is saying, I love you. And because I love you, I give you up to what you want to do, even though it keeps us separated. Even though the way you want leads to destruction. If you ever, ever want to get off of that road that leads to destruction and come back, I'll be here. And I'll show you the way to do it. And that way is Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the truth that Jonah discovered as he was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. God doesn't want to give people up. If you look at people who are living in sin, if you look at people who are doing debased things, if you are looking at people who are doing horrible, sinful things, I want you to remember something. God wants them. They are headed down a road to destruction and God wants to give them an off-ramp. I've heard people ask, why would a loving God send anyone to hell? Anybody ever heard that question before? 
I'm going to tell you the answer that you can give them. When they ask you, why would a loving God send anyone to hell? You tell them God is not sending anyone to hell. They've been on the road to hell since they were born. God is giving them an off-ramp. God is giving them a way away from hell. But they've got to make the choice. They've got to make the decision. God wants to get you off that road to hell, and he is offering his son, Jesus Christ, as the way. And yes, the only way. God is offering that way. He's offering the chance for you to zip and make a U-turn, to get off that road and head back to him. And the way through that is through the, the death of his son, Jesus Christ. You can tell them that. It might be like adding water to a brick of dried out clay. Now they might need a lot more water than what you can give them. But that's your part. That's your drop. That's your cup. That's your gallon. That's what you can tell them. You can tell them salvation belongs to the Lord. And he wants to get you off this road. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for knowing us so very intimately that you knew we would disobey you. Father, we thank you that even before you created us, you created a way back to you. You created a way for us to get off of this road of destruction and to make a U-turn, to repent, to come back and have the right to be called your child. And Father, we see the world today. We see all of the things that are happening. We see the corruption. We see the, the, the sin. We see people calling bad good and good bad. All of these things that you knew would happen. That you wrote about in Scripture. And yet, we are just awed that you are patient. That you love us so much that you want to give us a way back to you. You didn't give up on us. You didn't destroy us. You want us back. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we encounter people who would ask this question, why would a loving God send people to hell? Help us to be able to answer them in love, in patience, in mercy, and in grace. Help us to be the water on these hearts of clay brick. Help us to just add a few drops to soften their hearts. These are the things that you want us to do. To share our story, to share our testimony, to share Jesus Christ with a world that's on the road to destruction. 
Father, use us as you would see fit to bring people back to you. And Father, destroy in us our own hard hearts that would look at people and say they don't deserve God. They don't deserve salvation. They deserve to go to hell. Destroy that in us right now. Let us see every human being as a potential child of God and give us every ability and every opportunity to add a little water. And pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God is sovereign. God could have fixed my slides. God could have turned Dave's page. But he didn't. God uses even our foibles, even those little things that we don't think are that big, and he can use them for his glory. Amen. We've all made mistakes. We've all made mistakes talking with people about Jesus Christ. But God is still going to use those interactions. God is still going to use anything that we do that is part of His will to bring people back to Him. Because He is sovereign. And He is love. And I encourage you this morning, when you go out, when you get ready to go back to school, when you get ready to go back to work, see people as potential children of God and treat them that way. God bless you.